Well, as, uh, as we jump into the lesson, if you weren't here last week, even if you were, just as a reminder, last week we started a four-part series within Man Challenge called The Origin Story. And uh, if you were here, you remember every like big heroic character in every sort of heroic tale, whether it's science fiction or whether it is a Marvel movie, there's an origin story, how that person got their superpowers or how they got up to that point, why they care about what they care about. It's sort of like clues to unlocking who they are. And for us as people, this is a great idea for us to go back to our origin story. That is where humans came from, where we as men came from, because it's in the Bible, and the reason it's in the Bible isn't a historical footnote that historians go, well, now that's interesting. It is there for our instruction, for our betterment, for our guidance, so that we see what it's all about as men. And if if you were here last week, we talked about the importance of the first chapter of Genesis, that human beings, men, we were created in the image of God. And that hasn't changed. Now, that has been altered a bit. That is, there's been scarring that's happened to that. But the image of God is alive and well in people, which explains why people are different and function different than anything else on the planet Earth. And uh, we identified part of that image of God is that all people have dignity, they have responsibility, and they have capacity. And by way of having dignity as people, being more born in God's image... One of, one of the aspects of dignity is that we can't be reduced to just facets of who we are. We can't be reduced to, to our, for instance, our work. That would be to take away the image of God in us just to say, well, this guy is this. You know, this guy is a sports fanatic. No, we're more than that. This guy is an incredible worker. Well, no, we're more than that. And I, I think I ran out of time last week to share, but um, so forgive me if I've, I repeat myself here, but I had just watched an interview with Kirk Cousins, who's the uh, quarterback for the, for the Minnesota Vikings, who tragically didn't beat the evil 49ers, so we have to endure them in the Super Bowl. Sorry, I lived in California. I got a thing against 49ers. Um, any of you 49ers fans? Any of you? Oh, God bless you. They're great. They're a wonderful team. Uh, but Kirk Cousins, in the interview, what was really great is he talked about his time at Michigan State when he, as a quarterback, threw an interception and all of the Notre Dame Stadium erupted in affirmation of his failure and how he knew he had blown the game. It was a bad throw on his part. He should have just been sacked and taken the sack, but he throws the ball on the, in the wrong direction and a Notre Dame player intercepts and interception game over and he kind of walks off the field and and so the interviewer uh he was sharing how his faith in christ really gave him strength in that moment and the guy said what do you you mean by that and he said well if all i was was a football player then i would have felt like a miserable failure that would have been a low of a low moment but as i walked off i i was able to prayerfully reflect on the fact there's more to life than this i am more than just a football player for michigan state and, and he, he, he tapped into this idea that we can't be reduced. We have dignity. We can't be reduced to our success. We can't be reduced to our failures, thank God. And then we said that as people in made in God's image, we had responsibility. There were tasks. There were, there were things that we were called upon by God to do, that we weren't called upon to just lay around in the perfect garden state and collect a suntan or golf. We had something commissioned for us to do. And then we said, People have capacity. We have this ability to be reflective about what we do, the good and the bad. We have a conscience 
that animals don't have those sorts of things. An animal doesn't think, I just went too far killing that other wolf. That's not, an animal doesn't think about it. It operates instinctively. It, it just does things to survive. But as people, we're not just survival people. We have this capacity, this depth of personhood. So that's all reflection of last week on the whole idea of being made in the image of God. And so this week we bridge into sort of the, the origin story from a different angle. The first chapter of Genesis is this overarching, the different days, the, the creation of man, and now we're going to get into the detail of like how it happened, without a lot of detail, quite frankly. But it starts out in uh, Genesis 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you to, to uh, you know, open your smartphone, or if you have one of those old-fashioned paper copies, those are good too. So Genesis 2, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. It starts out, it says... Uh, the, um, then, this is about verse, uh, verse 7, I think, 6 or 7. Then the Lord formed a man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And I, I hope you find that interesting. Like, there, there's a poetic quality to it that transcends the historical, that God, said, God makes us, he makes humanity out of the dust of the ground. And there's different ways of translating that. There's, uh, you know, clay or dirt or soil. In fact, that's why if you've ever been to a funeral, the minister oftentimes will close out the service and he'll say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Or from, from dust we come, dust we return. From the earth we come, earth we return. And those are variations not from a verse in the Bible, but from the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer in the English language written hundreds of years ago. But it's a compilation of verses like this that indicate that we are physically of an organic substance. That over time, given enough time, we return to the earth. And we are physically of dust. Now some people take the the dust and they get very fancy and poetic with it and say dust uh, was representative of earth but people came out of primates or people came out of the, the dust of other things that were made. And they argue efficiently for those things. I tend to not see it that way. But good Christians sometimes actually take that approach. And they say, well, from dust isn't the earth, but from other creatures. But whether you take that approach, or whether you just take the, God just looked at the earth and said, out of it comes man, and we were formed. Whichever way, as long as you come to the firm conclusion that God supernaturally interjected He made us, he made people out of something, whether it was the earth or whether it was a gorilla. I don't care personally. What I care about is the knowledge that God here is the mover. He is the one. It doesn't happen by accident. So it reinforces this idea, guys, that we have purpose in life. That as people, we aren't just some sort of cosmic accident or cosmic lucky experience that we aren't at the end of a long, long line of failure and we are the success. This God interjected on earth and he made a point of saying, I'm going to make humans. I'm going to draw them out of the dust of the earth from what is on the earth. So unlike Scientology, we're not like the offspring of some aliens that came in and hooked up with Neanderthals or whatever it is they believe. Like we're not, we aren't from someplace else. We are from here we were, we were crafted from the stuff that is here. And this, is, uh, this brings us to the, um, 
Sorry, I got a few slides I can go to. This brings us to the first point. People were created by God. Now, we covered that last week, God, that we're made in God's image, but physically, we are, we, are, we are the stuff of this earth. And so the scriptures here says, now the Lord had planted a garden, as he kind of goes on. The Lord had planted a garden in, in the east of Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. So now he's formed man, breathed into his nostrils, and the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and and good for food in the middle of the garden where the tree were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there's a handful of things in here that are just kind of like sort of fun facts that that um you know they may change your day and they may not. Adam is just from the Hebrew Adam, which is man. That's it. So Adam, he's just man. It's sort of like uh, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, old westerns. Uh, there, there, it was called Big Jake, and uh, you know, great classic western. And in uh, the main character, he had a dog, and you know what the dog's name was? Dog. Yeah, it was great. It was a, it was like the perfect name for a dog. Dog. So uh, God does the same. You know, the sort of the, the same thing there is he calls man, man. That's a good name. And so Adam, man, is the first guy, and he puts him in a garden. Now, notice there's two trees there that are called out. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, I won't get us bogged down on this. I think this is fascinating. When you get to the end of the Bible, at the tail end of Revelation, Revelation 21, God reshapes. There's a new heaven and a new earth. It gets ruined over time, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And in this uh, newness, he puts the tree of life again. Tree of life's back. We're going to get to, in a couple chapters, the tree of life is barred from human presence at some point when sin enters the world. And the line, and again, we'll talk about this in a couple couple weeks, is the reason is that God says, if, if people live forever in this broken, sinful state, this would be awful. I mean, you just think about, think about if you were, you were living in a concentration camp, but you couldn't die. You could just live in an awful, awful state like that forever and ever and ever. Doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Anyone signing up for that one? No. And so God in his mercy brings mortality into the equation. Again, we'll get to that later. But the tree of life, this is just like a fun, scholars sit around and debate weird stuff. And one of the things that gets debated is, you know, many of you have read in the early parts of the Old Testament where this guy lives 700 years and this guy lives 600 years and this guy lives 900 years. And you're kind of, if you're a normal person, you kind of go, is that like, is that for real or is that not for real? Is, did a scribe accidentally add a zero? What is that? Is there, should there be a decimal point somewhere in there? And scholars suggest that one of the reasons that people back in ancient times, may, if we take that literal, that they were that old, it could be the residual of the tree of life, meaning that Adam ate from the tree of life, and then he doesn't have access to the tree of life, but there's some sort of like actual physical power that that thing gave off in the consumption of it. I don't want to skip bogged down on that. Because, like I said, scholars who have too much time on their hands sit around in libraries and argue that sort of stuff. I don't have a lot of time for that, but I find it interesting nonetheless. It helps me when I'm reading parts of the Bible and I go, how could that be? And why isn't that that way anymore? Well, 
The further you get away from the sustenance of that tree as generations move on, people live shorter lifespans. That could be, could be. The tree of knowledge, good, evil, we'll get, that, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. But I just wanted to draw out that as you're reading along in the Bible. It's fascinating, some of, these stuff you, some of the stuff you see. Then in um, 15 and 17, it says, The Lord looked at the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, and don't miss this part, to work it and take care of it. So if you like to underline things or highlight things, there's something to like highlight or underline. To work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. And, you know, Adam, Adam enjoyed, this is the second point, Adam enjoyed a, a, a great relationship to God. He enjoyed a great relationship with God. What we see here, there, there, there's no sin in the world yet. That's coming in chapter 3. world's perfect. God places Adam in the garden. God communicates directly with Adam. He doesn't give him a big laundry list of things not to do. He doesn't need to. He doesn't have to say, don't steal from your neighbor. How come? There's no neighbor. He doesn't have to say any of this. He doesn't have to say, don't look lustfully on, on the girls over there. There are no girls over there. He is very much alone, but he also has a very unhindered relationship with God. He hasn't even thought about sin yet. It hasn't even entered his mind yet. It's not even something that he's predisposed to. As he's falling asleep at night, he's not thinking things he shouldn't think. He doesn't wake up thinking things he shouldn't think. He is a perfect man. He's truly a perfect man. And in that situation, God speaks directly to him, enjoy the garden, take care of it, tend to the garden. But don't eat this over here. One instruction, don't touch that. And so Adam has this work to do. And this, this shows us not just that he had this great relationship, because now we live in an era where we have barriers in that relationship. Part of the reason we come here on a morning like this is we're trying to fine-tune that relationship with God. As men, we're trying to, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to get this right. We want to have... We want to be able to know what God expects of us, and we want to please Him, and, and, and we want to hear from Him. I mean, that, that's why that we get up on an early morning. We want to rub shoulders with other guys that are interested in that same thing, too. And so Adam, he, he didn't have to have an accountability group. He didn't have to have a support group. He didn't have to study who, what does God think of me and what does God want from me. He had it. It's right there in a simple sentence of Adam do this and, do, and don't do that. And the do this part, this is uh, number three on your sheet there, is that, and this is one that might trouble you. I don't know how you'll feel about this. But in a perfect world, the perfect man was given work to do. Some of us are like, man, I can't wait to retire. Some of those, I don't want to get old too fast, but I also like the idea of not doing anything, right? I, don't like, I like the idea of having no schedule. How many of you are looking forward to that day? A few of you. How many of you are like, that sounds terrible. That actually just, you wake up and you, it was a shuffleboard or pinochle or whatever. What do you do? Pickleball? I don't know. What do you do? In your, it, it, there's only so much leisure time. My wife and I, we used, to, um, we used to go down and visit her grandma. Her grandma lived right on the Gulf of Mexico. Beautiful home outside of Tampa Bay, right near Clearwater. It was a terrific house. And we would just go down there and we would stay with Grandma Jackie. And Grandma Jackie was a, a kind and gracious host. The back of her house was all windows and it opened up to the golf. It was, 
it was wonderful. I mean, it was so good to go there. And we would go, and on day one, it was like, ah, oh, we're out of the nasty, blizzardy conditions of Michigan because it's February and we're here in Florida. It's just, just awesome. But by day three, there was just so much Judge Judy you could watch. There was just so much waking up each day and go, what do we do today? I mean, really, truly, there's so much leisure that a person kind of put up with before they kind of look in a mirror and go, what on earth am I here for? Am I really just here to sponge off of humanity? Or am I here to contribute? And so here we have in this incredible verse that says the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to work it, and to take care of it. Now, here's what's fascinating, is that when scholars look at the formation of words, particularly Hebrew, Old Testament, and they compare it to other usages of that phrase, that word, when they, when they do the comparison here, they recognize that wherever care and maintain or, or uh, work it, take care of it, the, the Hebrew equivalents of those words, when those are in combination, those words are closely associated with the worship of God. Now that's fascinating. So if you just have, you know, work it or maintain it on its own, it might be in reference to a garden, it, it, literally. It might be in reference to the work a person does. But when those two words show up together in the Old Testament, time and time again, they have this spiritual connotation to them. So, so this explains something. This explains why work has a spiritual component for most of us. And you might go, how is my work spiritual? I mean, I get it, your work, Bill, in the church is spiritual. But in my office, I don't feel all that spiritual. This is what I mean by this. How, how many, you don't really have to raise your hand for this. I'll just ask a series of questions. How many of you guys find meaning in your work? You just think about the work you do, and you go, I find meaning in this. How many, uh, how many, you, how many of you, you play a role what you do, and just be honest here, like I said, you don't have to raise your hand, your work affirms who you are. You find yourself affirmed in, in who you are because of your work. Or maybe, maybe another way of looking at it is on a terrific day, everything goes right, the project comes through, and there's like this peace and this calm that washes over you. That uh, sometimes as you drift off to sleep, you're thinking of aspects of work and how to do it better. Now, some, some of you might go, eh, that's not me. So, this is how viewing work is viewing it through a spiritual lens. Is that a spiritual lens, we find meaning through a spiritual lens. We find, uh, we find joy, we find peace, we give our best, we find community. And this is... This helps us understand, I think, in the origin story, this helps us understand why we take work so seriously. Now, sometimes we take work seriously in a different way. Um, we're, have you ever been, for, you can raise your hand on this, have you ever been really disappointed in your leader? Whoever's your leader, your boss, it's some job. I'm not asking for your current job, especially if you work here. Uh, you know, it's a few of us. Um, but you, you've been disappointed with it. You have such high expectations. And that leader, for whatever reason, they exhibit selfishness or incompetence or something. You, you are like, you have an expectation of an excellence in that leader, and they don't show it, right? We've all, I think we've all had that at some point or another. Or um, 
you, uh, you work with colleagues, but you come away constantly and you're like, the culture of this place is lame, the community is lame, nobody here cares for each other. Even though it's just a job, it's just a job. You're just there to collect a paycheck, right? So why would you care that the culture of it's lame, the community of it's lame, that nobody there cares about you and you don't necessarily care about anybody else? Why would that, why would that thought even come to you as it relates to work? Or, or um, people around you don't do their very best. They do sort of, they phone it in. They do bare minimum. And you find yourself really, really frustrating or frustrated. You don't even own the company. You don't even share in the profits. And at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if they do their best work, as far as, like, as it affects you, but you care. You're like, man, these people, I want to work with people who are sharp. These people are dimwit, dull people. Have you ever, um, have you ever been depressed going to work, and you just, you're just can't wait for the weekend, you can't wait for the vacation, you can't wait for the different job, right? Okay. We all can relate to pretty much all that, right? At some point. I'm not saying your current job, but at some point. Why? It's just a job. Why do you care? I mean, if you still get your paycheck, the company's still going. Why do you care if it's lame and your leaders are imbeciles and your co- co-workers phone it in? Why do you care? Could it be that we view work with a spiritual lens? That the way that, like, hardwired into us, we are able to recognize that work has such a spiritual placeholder in our lives. We have an expectation. So the question is, where does that expectation come from? And I would suggest to you that the expectation was built in in the origin story of people. We take work not too seriously. Yes, sometimes it becomes an idol, and sometimes we worship work. Sometimes instead of finding our meaning where we should find our meaning, we find our meaning in work. But that's why... That's why Paul in Colossians 3 will say, hey, when you work, when you do your work, work, work at it like you're working for the Lord, not for your manager, your boss, or your master. Work, as it, work at it as you're working for the Lord. Because then when your earthly master, your manager looks at your work, he'll, he'll see it or she'll see it and go, that's good work. But you didn't do it for them, you did it for the Lord. Now, this is where the story gets all convoluted, and we'll talk about this, uh, I believe, next week or the week after, is that what, what happens is we have a misplaced trajectory at work. Work is spiritual. Work means a ton to us. God made us to work. He didn't make us to be leisurely creatures. We're not, you know, he didn't plant us in the gardens like, now go fetch a lion and ride its back. Have a good time. You know, find a nice stallion and canter all over the garden and just enjoy. Swim in the waterfalls. Get a nice suntan. Enjoy just the the fruits of the garden. Don't forget to nap. He doesn't do that. He's like, here's the garden. You're all alone. Get to work. I mean, it would be easy to feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed for Adam. I'm like, for real? To, To care for it? To maintain the garden? It makes total sense when God is already instructing at the very beginning, this is one of the ways that you're going to interact with me and worship me, is by doing good work. That's what should, in fact, guys, this is what should inspire us to do our very, very best at work. It plagues me sometimes when I hear testimonies from people about Christians not taking their work seriously. We should should be the best workers. We honestly, we should be the most engaged 
Now, not because we worship our work, but because we worship God, who is the one who gives us the work to do. And so our work should be like the best work. We should invest, no matter, and no matter the task. That's the crazy part. I was in between uh, pastoral work before I came here a couple years ago, and some of you know this about me already, and uh, I, I get antsy if I'm not doing something. We had sold our house. We weren't sure where we were going. We were in the interview process here, so we thought, well, we're probably going to Oklahoma City. And, uh, and so my wife said, you have to have something to do. It's Christmas time. Why don't you go down to Target and get a seasonal job? I, I'm telling you what, that, that was so much fun. I worked shipping and receiving. So if someone placed an order online, uh, most of us have done this at some point for Target, I'd run out in the store, find the item, pack it up, or put it down front. It was a blast. It was a blast for a variety of reasons. But one of the cool parts was working with a whole bunch of people who never darkened the door of a church, and I became their pastor at the church. I mean, that target became sort of my church, if you will. I started to invest in, I mean, they were all young people for the most part who, who uh, took, it pay, near as I could tell, they would take all their paycheck and either get a tattoo with it or buy alcohol with it. They weren't making good choices, all right? There were a few exceptions, but most of them were not making, and I became like their dad or their uncle, you know? I became, I, so these young people, I'd have these conversations. I didn't tell them I was a pastor. I didn't tell them I was a Christian. I just had a great attitude, can-do attitude, worked really hard, and I had the managers coming back talking to me, like, okay, what's up with you? It was, it was fascinating, the conversations God allowed me to have of a spiritual level because I did good work. Now, if I showed up and did crappy work, then guess what? And, and so even in that work, it was temporary work, it was poorly paid work, it wasn't part of my career path, but guess what? No matter what you do, you work and you understand my work has this spiritual side to it. All right, we're going to talk more about work in a coming week, but I, this just lays a foundation, and I think this is so, so, so important for us to get, uh, get that clear. All right, so moving right along, because the topic of this is work and relationships. Here we're going to get into relationships. And by the way, you, some of you noted there's no discussion questions. That's going to be on a slide. I had to submit the handout uh, content earlier than I normally have to, so I said, ah, that's all right, I'll just put the, con- I'll put the conversation starters up on the slide, so don't worry, there'll be that. So um, verse 18 in, in chapter 2, it said, the Lord God said, it, it's not good for man to be alone. Remember, God has this unhindered relationship with man, so he's able to make observations about man, and man's able to communicate with God. God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper for him, Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And what this shows us is that even in a perfect world, the perfect man had a relational need. That it was, it's not a flaw to feel that isolation and not like the isolation. It is not a flaw to have the inability to be all by yourself. That is not a flaw at all. Sometimes as men, women are smarter than we are at, at this, but sometimes as men, we look at it and go, you know what, if I was a real tough guy, if I was like John Wayne, I wouldn't need anybody. 
If I was like John Wick and John Wick 1 or 2 or 3, I wouldn't need anybody, although he does. Not saying I've seen it, but he does have a little community, but helps him. Um, but, but we look at, you know, you sing the old uh, Eagles song, I don't care when you were born, Desperado by the Eagles, you, you turn that on, that comes on the radio, you crank it up, you sing along, you're like, yeah, that's it, out riding fences for so long now. And, and there's almost this picture, now if you sing along to it and you listen to the lyrics, you realize, oh wait, no, it's depressing and it's sad. That's really not a happy song, but it's a good song. But as men, we kind of get this idea like, I'd like, to be, I'd like to be that guy who could be a solo operator. And yet, in a perfect world, the perfect man, it isn't a flaw in humanity that we need others. It's actually built in. And we come back to last week. When God made us in his image, the Trinitarian God of Father, Son, Holy Spirit made us not just with a God-shaped void that has to be filled by God, but he made us with a human-shaped void that has to be filled by other people, friends or in this case, a spouse. And so it says that no um, suitable helper, the old uh, Hebrew word here is ezer. And uh, we hear this every Christmas. We hear this word. Uh, how many of you like the, the uh, story Christmas Carol? Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer is a call out from the Old Testament. And it did become a name in the 19th century. Ebenezer is a stone uh, Ezer, uh, Eben is stone or rock, and Ezer is uh, helper. So it's the stone or the rock of help. The Ebenezer was a memorial stone to remind the nation of Israel of their need for support, their need for help. It became like a, a monument, kind of like in Washington, D.C. We have all kinds of monuments to war, to famous figures, to remind us that we didn't get here all by ourselves. We needed help to become the people that we are. That's why we set up monuments, and they set up the Ebenezer, the, the, stone, the, the, the stone of help. And it wasn't of this story. In fact, pretty much every other place that Ezer is used in the Bible, it is not a subordinate, weaker role, but it's used of God in his relationship with the nation and the people of Israel. So here's what's fascinating, and this will kind of mess with you a little bit, because I grew up Baptist, you know, and we, every now and then the pastor would trot this one out and go, fellas, this is why a man is a man and a lady is a lady. God made her to help us. She's my help me. She's there to help. And, and it really would express it with this, very subordinate role. And uh, I go back to, uh, some of you have been inflicted with my big fat Greek wedding. Uh, raise your hand if you've seen the movie, right? Some of you some of you saw by choice, and that's manly of you. And some of you, not by choice, because a lady in your life. But there's this line in the movie where the, where the Greek mama, the matriarch of the family, you know, she's having to put up with her husband who's bossy and kind of uh, obnoxious at times. And uh, so she's with only the ladies, and she's like, uh, the man, he is the head, but the woman, she is the neck. So it was this expression like, in our quietness, we'll put up with your nonsense, but we know we control the direction of this thing. Well, the easer is not one of weaker status. It is truly one that comes and either makes whole, rescues, or helps. So there's a rule in biblical interpretation, the first time you see a word, that sets the tone for that word. So if we were to say, well, Ezer really does mean weak. 
It, I mean, it, it's a lower role. Like there's man, and then his like the junior assistant to man is the woman, the easer. If we were to suggest that, then we'd be in trouble down the road when we're like, you know what, Israel, the power needed a little helper, a tiny little God to come along and help. Because that's not how the narratives work their way out. Now, what I'm not saying is that a woman is God, okay? But what I'm saying is that we have to get around that idea that she is beneath, but she is truly a completer. She is a helper. She is, she is one that is integrated into the, into the whole. And so it says, uh, so, the, so the Lord made, uh, the Lord God called man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he, and he brought her to the man. And the man, I love this. This is very poetic of him. I, I question whether or not this is the first thing the guy said. The guy said, this is now bone of my bones. So she's standing buck naked in front of him, by the way, and she's perfect. This is now bone, and he hadn't been around ladies before. His first sight, you know. Uh, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. Now, this is beyond the quote, probably. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were naked, both naked, which is, for some of you guys, your favorite verse in the Bible. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And uh, there's a whole lot in there. Like I said, I kind of, I got to believe, you know, he wakes up from a deep sleep and she's there and she is in her birthday suit. And I, I'm thinking, I'm scrolling through the different things that he probably said. And I'm not sure it was that poem. I think there may have been a few other choice morsels that were expressed. And then, and then he got to the poem at some point. But uh, I think he was pretty excited to meet her for the very first time. And uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here. And there's stuff we learn about marriage, so let's just hit that briefly. And then there's stuff we learn about relationships. So briefly on marriage, that, um, that the wife in this role is not in a subordinate role, that she is, uh, she is to be like the guy's uh, doormat, she is not to be uh, his grocery getter, she is not to be his uh, errand girl. She is really there to complete him. He's alone, and he needs to not be alone. There is no, no suitable equal opposite other for him he needs somebody there for him and God recognizes that before he recognizes that and God provides her there's another aspect to it it says this is the line that is repeated by Jesus in the gospels this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh and guys this is important for us around these tables if you're married is there's a call of men to leave their parents in a way that isn't called upon a woman to leave her parents. Now, I'm not suggesting that her parents interfering in a marriage is a good thing if they're doing that. That's got to be addressed. But a man has to make a clean break from his family in a way. There's an old adage that um, a, a boy is a boy until he takes him a wife. No, a son is a son until he takes him a wife. A daughter is a daughter all of her life. And I don't know if that's entirely true. That is not in the Bible. But there is a concept that for masculinity to really emerge, at some point a guy has to come out from underneath his father and his mother and be on his own. Personally, I am glad that we had the American Revolution so we don't have to bow a knee to the British royals because they're terrible. However, I like that hairy kid. You know, it's whatever was the impetus for it. He was like, you know what, I don't need to be a prince anymore. I'm like 17th in line for this thing anyhow. I'd like to live in Canada. 
And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that's just one step to America because he wants to be one of us. And I don't blame him for that. But there's something that the whole world's like, whoa, wait a minute. You want to get a job? I mean, he won't get really a job, I don't think. But, you know, at least he won't be just one of those guys just walking around wearing funny hats and funny clothes, right? And, and there's something about manhood that in order for it to emerge has to come out from underneath the family, has to leave his father and mother. And then he starts something new. He cleaves to his wife. He becomes one flesh with his wife. Anyhow, we can't get too sidetracked on marriage because really what I want to tap into is something we learn about relationships in general. And this is what we learn. As men, we're not called to live in isolation. We are not called to live alone. We are called to have deep and meaningful friendships that on our own, it's not good. And that is not as a result of sin. In other words, if I become holy enough and lean into God enough, I don't need other people. You could become the holiest of holy people on the planet Earth, and still you will need other people. We are made with a human-shaped void. In a state of perfection, no flaw on Earth yet, we need other people, and we still do. So in our condition, imagine how amplified that is. So if that was true when we were perfect, we are not perfect now. We need other people in our lives. We need other relationships in our lives, which is why we do round tables and not rows, which is why we have a discussion time and why we encourage some group to form out of this. This is why we do even this, is because for some, they have their posse of guys and it's already formed, great. But for many of us, that thing is still in flux or we don't have a set of guys that really know us and we really know. And so as we turn to our discussion time, just a handful of questions to guide. You don't feel the need to stick with these. Um, but but uh, as you discuss around the tables, you know, dig into this topic. The, that what does this chapter teach us about us as men? How does this origin story shape us. So uh, as always, you got like a little over 15 minutes and at, at quarter till I'll come up and I'll close us in prayer and we'll be dismissed. All right. So go to your tables, have a discussion. I'll dismiss us.